Nora Speaks is a weekly podcast that tugs at the soul and consciousness of the Black community. With show topics such as youth empowerment, education, women's impact, and civic engagement, Nora Speaks challenges the listener to not only join the movement, but be the movement. On the show, you'll learn from insightful guests who have demonstrated capacity in these fields and more, and I'm your host, Nora Muhammad. Welcome to the show. Diabetes and hypertension are some of the leading causes of blindness, as well as glaucoma for African Americans. So, yeah, we need to have our vision checked every single year just to make sure that we are not missing things. Did you know that Black people lead in many preventable and manageable diseases, some of which impact the health of our eyes and our vision? Well, here to discuss vision health is this week's guest, Dr. Sandra West. Dr. West is an optometrist having 27 years of practice, and she also happens to be my own doctor. I met Dr. West several years ago when I scheduled a routine vision exam, and to my surprise, and to my delight, the doctor was a black woman. Interestingly, when I attended a business conference in New Orleans several months later, we found ourselves meeting again as attendees of the same conference. We talk a bit about that in this episode. I asked Dr. West to be a guest on the show, not because she is my own personal doctor, but because of what I knew she had to offer Nora Speaks listeners. Not only does Dr. West teach us when we should begin vision checks, but also what our doctors are checking for, and she shares some of the latest technology aiding optometrists today. Additionally, Dr. West shares insights into her own childhood, how she herself was raised by dynamic parents, and what parents can do to prepare children for future success. Dr. West is an advocate for STEM and vocational training, and she is a motivational speaker. This was an informative and inspiring conversation for me, and I hope it will be for you too. Now, with no further delay, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sandra West. Welcome to another episode of the Nora Speaks podcast. And I am your host, Nora Muhammad, and I am very excited to be joined by a wonderful guest that is Dr. Sandra West, who happens to be my optometrist, and I'm very excited to have her on the Nora Speaks podcast. Welcome to the show, Dr. West. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. And Dr. West is a graduate of Temple University and Pennsylvania College of Optometry. She's been practicing for 27 years as a primary care optometrist. Um, And, you know, you do a lot of things, Dr. West, but before we get started into, um, you know, your field and and what you think that we should know, I have a question for you that I, I, you know, I know that, you know, you were raised by two loving, powerful, wonderful parents. So I wanted you to share what would be some of the greatest lessons that you've learned from your parents. Oh, wow. Um, That's a hard one because um, my dad died when I was nine, Mm. but my dad has such a influence in my life that even now I still draw back on things that he taught me. Uh, And so we just had Kobe Bryant pass away and Mm. they were talking about the girl dads, you know, uh, and I had a girl dad. Um, Mm. My dad did so many things with us and 
you know, my mama hated the fact that he would take us outside and put us under that car, you know, so <laughs> at, at nine years old, I knew how to check for oil, you know, so when I went to take my daughter to get her car, I told him to pop the hood and he looked at me like I was crazy, <laughs> you know, but those are things that I learned from my dad. I learned how to barter from mm -hmm. my dad. I learned how to make deals from my dad. I learned uh, strength from my dad. My dad always told me never to let people see you cry because that is deemed to be a sign of weakness and they will prey on that. Um, you know, so my primary caregiver was my mother. Um, and my mother was a woman of strength. She was a very, very quiet woman. Uh, sometimes you wouldn't know she was there, but she was very protective, that fierce lioness, yes. protective of her children. And, and in her quietness, she also saw her strength. And so I learned a lot of things from my parents that even now, you know, I'm almost 60 years old. I still hear my mom in my ear, yeah. uh, you know, um, always uh, emphasizing the need for education, always wanting us to go further than they went uh, and, and have a good prosperous life. Um, you know, dad always told us your word is your bond. Mm -hmm. Can't keep your word. Nobody's going to take you. Uh, nobody's going to believe anything that you do and, and you lose value in their life because you know people aren't going to take you seriously so I still I, I still draw on things that I learned from my parents even now that's wonderful you know I think you know in, in a, what you said is is just so remarkable in a time where um, I see a lot of um, devaluing of the traditional family uh, you know in, in the work that I do in my community I see a lot of young women having children and you know the the father's are the fathers of the children are estranged or there just doesn't really seem to be a value of that kind of bonding and connection and I like to hear stories like yours so that you know these young women and these young men who are fathers can understand the value that family has and the impact that a father can and and should have on his children his sons and his daughters uh, I, I just think it's so important. And and I love what you had to say about being under the hood. You just reminded me of my great grandfather. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't raised by my father, but he was there. My uncles were there. And I, you know, I was putting up siding on houses. I was looking under the hood of cars myself. Uh, and, and it's just so much value there that, as you said, it's the time that we spend with them. Yes. That most important. And even though, you know, I was very, very close to my father. My mother said I was his shadow, um, but I'm a single mom. You know, I, I, I raised my daughter uh, in a single relationship, um, but there were strong black men all around us, you know, and so uh, she's had strong black men in her family. You know, one of the things that I've always made certain not to do was to devalue black men in front of her. Uh, my relationship with her father is my relationship with her father. I've never said a negative thing to her about her dad. As she's gotten older, my daughter's 37 years old. When her father gives her questions, she then comes back to me for answers. And, and I can explain things to her differently as a 37-year-old yes. than as a seven-year-old. Right. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm glad you said that because we do, we need um, to have those influential men. They have to be there, those positive figures. So, you know, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I think that was a wonderful way to start the show. Um, and as you've been practicing optometry for 27 years now, what, what were those early influential experiences that led you to study optometry? 
Well, I think we talked about this the last time I saw you, that when I was little, people always asked me this question, how did you get that interest? Mm -hmm. Well, I was one of those kids who had a million questions. And as a child, um, I started wearing glasses when I was nine and I had a, a lot of questions because I thought I could see, now you're telling me I can't see and what <laughs> happened. Right. Uh, but back in the 60s, it was little girl, go over in that corner and don't ask any questions. Well, just because you're not going to answer my questions doesn't mean I'm not going to go find the answer. And so I started seeking answers for myself. And when I was in high school, I met a doctor who had just graduated. I asked him questions. He gave me books. <laughs> and so I got to read up on the eye. And so that's actually how my interest peaked. Mm. Were there other interests that, that you um, didn't pursue? Or was optometry just you know such a um, strong um, passion for you? Well, I have to kind of go back because I have a bachelor in social work. People don't realize that. I have, actually have a bachelor's in social work. I'm a nappy-haired little girl from North Philadelphia. I come from a single-parent household. I told you my dad died at nine. And in high school, when I started researching optometry, I realized very quickly we didn't have $20,000 a year to send me mm. to optometry school after four years of undergraduate. So I decided to just go get a degree. I could work with people. I love working with people. And then I would figure it out. Um, but as a social worker, one of the things I always said to my kids was that you have to have a dream and you have to shoot for the dream. Yes. And then I decided I needed to shoot for my own. And so uh, that's what I did. So I have a degree in social work and I have a doctorate in optometry. And sometimes the two actually come together. People find that interesting. But there are times when I have the doctor and the social worker at I can see how that fits you. I can from my time with you. So, you know, for those of us who don't know the difference between optometry and ophthalmology, explain that to us, please. Well, let me, let me do the three O's because they always mix up the three O's. So we'll start with the ophthalmologist. Okay. The ophthalmologist is a medical doctor, um, a surgeon who uh, deals with diseases of the eye. Uh, an optometrist is not a medical doctor but we are trained to treat diseases of the eyes, but I am not a surgeon. Trust me, I am not. I know my limitations on that. Um, but I can treat certain diseases. So if you have a conjunctivitis, uh, if you have red eyes, uh, uh, I can treat those kinds of things. But if you have a cataract, I'm gonna send you over to the ophthalmologist, that is the surgeon. Uh, the optician is the technician who uh, helps you with your frame selections and or makes your glasses. Okay. So okay. those three O's, everyone always mixes up. So with the optometry, you are understand or helping the patient understand their vision needs. Yes, we, we under, we help them understand their vision needs, but again, we can also treat some eye diseases as well. Okay. So as a, an, an optometrist and seeing, um, you know, people coming in and do people come into, to see you when they notice a, uh, a change in their vision? Um, do people come in there before, you know, as, as preventative or getting ahead of things? I find, well, you know, get people to come in as a preventative measure. You really don't want to wait until something is wrong. Uh, so for children, for instance, um, if you have a normal child, there's nothing going on health-wise, those babies honestly should be checked in preschool and as they're going into kindergarten. If there is a serious health problem, those babies are picked up in the prenatal ward, okay? Mm -hmm. They have uh, pediatric ophthalmologists that go in uh, prenatal um, clinics and diagnose those children because if you don't catch vision problems early, 
the child may never see. Mm. So that's why we try to encourage people, you know, don't rely on screenings at, at your school. Don't rely on screenings at the doctor's office. Take them to an eye care professional because we're doing tests that other people can't detect. And if the child is not corrected by a certain age, they may never get 20-20 vision or even close to that. There are some kids that for the first time, you know, they're 11, 12 years old, and now somebody picked up, they have a vision problem. We may not get them corrected to 2020. Uh, 2040 is the legal requirement to drive, but there are some children who cannot see 2020. Wow. So, um, I, you know, when I raised, um, I'm raising two sons, and I recall, um, you know, going to the pediatrician and, you know, they would do the, the test, you know, they would have them stand back behind a line and read from the board. And I was never encouraged to take them to see an optometrist, you know, just as a, a routine screening. And you're saying that that is something that we should absolutely do. So at what age should they uh, come to you? By the time they are going to preschool, unless there's a problem ahead of time, if you see your child bumping into things, let your parental instincts kick in. If something's in front of your child and your child doesn't see it or your child is reaching in and is unable to grasp it the first time, let your parental instincts kick in. There are pediatric ophthalmologists, they're pediatric optometrists. Uh, if you suspect there's something wrong, follow your instincts. Mm -hmm. But even when everything seems right, by the time those children are going into preschool, they should be checked. Okay. 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 Well, that's good to know. I didn't know that. And I think that there are a lot of things that we that we don't know. Um, you know, when when somebody um, is going to the doctor, of course, they're looking for blood pressure. Um, adults have their blood sugars drawn and, and things like that that are part of the routine um, screenings for adults. But I also recognize that there are some diseases that do impact our vision health. So can you help us understand, Dr. West, um, what medical conditions actually can impact and impair our vision? Sure. So again, we were talking about the children. Uh, there are things such as sickle cell that can impact on a child's eye health as well, well as their physical health. Uh, there are things like Lyme disease, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis can impact on their vision. So that's why we say, yeah, children should be checked every year. Um, and, and we're talking about little ones, you know, but make sure you're taking the little ones to a pediatric facility. You know, my child, when she was little, never went to my family doctor. She went to a pediatrician, you know, so even though in, in, in my particular retail setting, we started about seven or eight, those children should be checked well before that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for adults, uh, for children, you should be checked every year for adults, healthy adults, um, every one to two years is fine. But if there's a family history of high blood pressure, if there's a family history of diabetes, not only should you be having physicals once a year, you should have your eyes checked once a year. Diabetes and hypertension are some of the leading causes of blindness as well as glaucoma for African-Americans. So yeah, we need to have our vision checked every single year just to make sure that we are not missing things. Mm -hmm. So, well, then help us understand the anatomy of the eye where the high blood pressure or diabetes is impacting our vision. It may not, um, but you want to always catch things early. And so there's always that preventative mode. So just as people have high blood pressure may not know it until they land in the emergency room. Yeah. That's not the time when you want to 
find out about it. You want to know ahead of time mm -hmm. so you can stop the tremendous damage that's being done and you're not aware of it. Hypertension is a silent killer, but it can also blind you. Okay. So when I see a patient who has hypertension, if I see a patient who has diabetes, if I see a patient who has a family history of glaucoma, those patients are encouraged to be dilated. Um, patients complain about dilations. Nobody likes it. I get it done once a year myself. Um, but we're looking for things that can potentially blind you. Uh, so I'm looking for bleeding. I'm looking for swelling. I'm looking for those things and they need to be caught early because once you damage the eye, you don't get the tissue back. That's neuro tissue. Neuro tissue does not regenerate. And so you don't want to wait until you have a bleed in the back of the eye. You don't want to wait until you have a stroke in the back of the eye. You know, there are infarcts where the blood's not getting to certain areas. If blood is not getting to certain areas, that tissue's going to die. That's not what you want. You want to get it, uh, you know, early, very early on. Okay. Um, so then what is, I know what a cataract is. Um, I was present when my grandmother had her cataract extracted and she had a lens implanted. Yes. Um, what is glaucoma? Glaucoma is a certain, um, there are certain diseases that impact on the optic nerve. And typically when we think of glaucoma, we think of the pressure being too high in the eye. And when the pressure is too high, it starts to damage the optic nerve. Um, and once you have that damage occurring, again, it doesn't, it doesn't regenerate. So a lot of people will not recognize glaucoma, just like you don't recognize that you have high blood pressure. Mm. And once you recognize it, if your vision is creeping in and it's coming in almost tunnel vision, by the time it gets here, your field is very, very limited. So you want to catch glaucoma before that kind of damage occurs. And so we're looking at your pressures, but we're also looking at the nerve. And we want to make sure that the nerve has no damage going to it so, or, or happening to it. So uh, we do things like visual fields, which you know people think of the blinking light test and you're pressing a button uh, to tell us when you see that target. But that tells us how healthy that nerve is. You know, We also take pictures. It's not unusual for an African-American to have large nerves. I see large nerves all the time, but a large nerve does not necessarily mean the, the nerve is unhealthy. We start to do other tests to make sure that that eye is healthy. So we're checking pressures and we're taking pictures so that we have um, something to compare over time. Mm -hmm. What this nerve looks like today versus what it looks like, you know, five years from now. The visual fields, we have uh, visual fields that tell us um, you know, how far out you can see you. Again, you don't want that field to shrink because then you've got damage that you can't uh, get back. Um, but some of the newer technologies, we have uh, OCTs, which can, can give us a, a, a picture on another level. Um, and it tells us early changes where we would not be able to see with the other technology. So yeah, there are a lot, mm. lot of advances that are going on in optometry that are really, really exciting. So, you know, we've gotten the retinal camera. Some of the uh, offices are now starting to get the OCTs on a mass basis. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Wow. Well, you know, see, your, your excitement that you have right now is, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because, you know, the, the, the few times that I've been there in the office and, you know, I'm somebody that asks my doctors a million questions and, and I thought, well, it would be great to capture this conversation on the microphone. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, because I'm sure there are other people besides me that are curious about, um, you know, what's going on with our eyes and how we can protect our vision. Um, so I do some work with folks who have um, um, intellectual disabilities, and I know that they too have vision screens. So help me understand for someone who may not communicate in the conventional way for you to, for them to say, I see, um, I, I, you know, or, or reading letters or reading numbers um, or having, um, t- you know, telling you what colors we see, help us understand how you can ascertain someone's visual needs or vision changes when they're not able to communicate in the standard way. Well, let's go back to the baby. Let's go back to the infant. Infants can't talk. Mm-hmm. But I don't need the baby to talk to me to determine whether that baby has a refractive error, whether they are in need of eyeglasses. And so um, there's a light actually that we can take a scope. This is old school, okay? Because you guys are used to the auto refractors. We put you behind this machine. We push the button. It gives me a piece of paper and it gives me a, a, a baseline. Well, I can't do that with an infant. Well, I could, but um, and they have handheld auto refractors. But if I'm doing it old school and I'm, and I'm using what's called a retinoscope, when I look in the eye, I'm looking at a pattern that goes with motion and against motion. Uh, and it tells me whether they're nearsighted or farsighted. It tells me whether they have astigmatism. So just by visualizing that light and how it's being visualized in the eye, I can tell whether you need glasses. I don't really need you to talk to me on that one, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a lot of patients who come in. We have certainly group homes that bring kid, kids in as well as adults who are nonverbal. Um, we had a little girl, I remember she um, was nonverbal, but her stimulus to light was intense. Mm. And I actually kind of said to them to put her in another room and let her calm down. See, that's when you see the social worker come out. Yes. Because I'm realizing that this child is responding to something else. And she was very overwhelmed during the exam. I could tell that she needs glasses. She may or may never wear her glasses. Um, But I also knew that the stimulus from lights was so intense with this child that the staff needed to be aware of it. So when they took her back, they actually worked with the therapist there to put her in settings where the lighting was not so overwhelmed with her. And she actually was more responsive in in that manner. So we don't necessarily need you to talk to us. I can refine it with you because I'm talking to you, right. you know, but I had a six-year-old that would not talk to me during that whole exam. <laughs> and his mother's like, well, how do you, how can you tell him? I can tell. <laughs> and I think the child just didn't want to give me a wrong answer. Okay. And so I said, you know what, take the glasses. I'll bring him back in a month and I'll see him. Yeah. And then he was talkative. He, he just <laughs> never wanted to give me a wrong answer. But if the target is not clear for him, he's not going to respond. Right. And once the target became clear for him, I couldn't stop him from talking. (laughs) So, you know, we don't really need people to talk. Uh, I remember being at the VA and one of my patients had an injury, uh, which kept him from communicating verbally. And I don't know what made me give him a piece of paper. Mm. Uh, And I gave him a piece of paper and he started writing and he said, nobody ever asked me before. Um, so there are ways of doing it, but people come in and they speak a different language. Right. You know, I don't speak Chinese. I don't speak Russian, but I can get that exam done. And once you begin to communicate with people and, and feel them out, you can tell whether it's clearer. They will let you know that, yeah, that one, no, go back to the other one. Uh, and, and I don't speak Russian, but we get it done. 
Okay. You know, so we don't necessarily need people to talk to us, but I certainly can refine it better for you because I can speak for you. Okay. Well, in your field, Dr. West, do you find that there are um, a, 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 a nice um, a, a black representation or, or do you, and, and I ask that because I participated in a, um, a career day at an elementary school last year and um, those of us presenters, we were all grouped together in a conference room and, and chatting, and there was a Black pharmacist in the room with us, and she was saying that there are so few Black pharmacists, and, you know, she's really, it was really her goal to, you know, really encourage the young people to consider pharmacy as a career, so do you find representation there? We have, we make up about 6% of the mm-hmm. population of optometrists nationwide. Uh, one of the things that uh, the Pennsylvania College of Optometry slash Salish University uh, can say is that we have one of the largest representations of African-Americans in the nation. And one of the reasons that we had that representation was the former dean at the, at the college, um, Dean Robert Horn. Uh, not only did they have a summer program, which they brought students in, and I was in that program. I certainly was an older student coming back. Uh, to school. And so we had a mix, not only of older students coming back, uh, predominantly Black, but it was a mixture. Um, But we also went back out. And so the students got to see us, uh, people who were interested in in health careers. Representation matters. And so when you see those doctors, you begin to think, well, wait a minute. Um, Sometimes when, when I'm not at work, I don't wear the doctor on my forehead. I mean, you got to know me to know I'm a doctor because I'm probably not going to tell you unless you ask me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my pastor said to me one time, he said, you know what? The kids need to know. The kids need to see you and, and know that you're a doctor. And I think that one of the things that happened with uh, desegregation is that our communities n- no longer had the doctors, the lawyers, right. uh, the, the professionals, uh, the blue collar workers, the white collar workers, they were all there. And once we had desegregation, they moved. And so the kids didn't get to see them. And so for the little kids, yeah, they, they, they know I'm a doctor. We had a little girl come in one day and I think when I braided my hair and she says, the doctor has braids. <laughs> yes, she has braids like me. Right. Yeah, I do. Little girl came back about a year later and one of my patients who was a special needs patient actually snatched my glasses off my face and he cut me um, with his fingernails. And so now I've got a bandage on my head. So a little girl comes in and she looks and she says, well, the doctor has a boo-boo. The doctors <laughs> don't have boo-boos. Doctors fix boo-boos. So we had to have a conversation because the wheels were turning on her. Yeah. She know doctors get boo-boos too, but she needs to see that I'm no different than her. You know, mm-hmm. I get up in the morning, I eat, I put on my clothes, you know, I go out, I get boo-boos, I fix boo-boos, yeah. but yes, I do eyeglasses too. That's and right. so, yeah, representation matters. They need to see and they need to begin to explore uh, different uh, careers for themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's such a sweet story. And you're right. It makes it, makes it relatable. You know, they can see themselves. And so I love that. So as you talked about um, the technological advances and, um, you know, the importance of us young people seeing doctors and attorneys and, you know, other uh, other professions um, look like them. I know you're also an advocate for vocational programs. You're an advocate for, you know, STEM programs. And 
I, I see that in many urban areas, urban districts, these um, kinds of programs are not included in the, in the education. I remember being in high school, I went to a high school in a rural, um, predominantly white community. And we had, you know, we had the shop class, we had the home ec, and, you know, so you can learn trades, sewing, all of those things, but I don't see that represented in our urban school district. So share with us what you think that we're losing when we're not offering these um, areas of interest to our students, our children at, you know, the high school age when they are thinking about what am I going to do after I graduate? Well, understand that sometimes even in the high schools, I went to an academically talented high school, okay? But that doesn't mean that people weren't trying to steer me away. You got to be real careful about that. Um, and so I would say to parents, expose your children. Expose them to a variety of things. College isn't for everybody. Um, but certainly things that are passionate, that, that your children are passionate about, that holds their interest. But we also have to be realistic and, and think about careers that will be profitable enough to allow them to live. Right. I mean, it's not enough to just survive. You know, we want to thrive as well. And so, um, you know, let them go out and, and see what electricians do. Let them go out and see what a plumber do. You do not want me to go in my kitchen right now. I, I tried that one day that the zinc got blocked up and I tried to get a wrench and I made a mess and I called the plumber because I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing in the kitchen. Um, but we don't expose our children to that. We need to allow our children to explore. We need to allow our children to understand that failure is a part of success. Yes. And so if you don't go out and try, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if I could tell my younger self anything, <clears throat> it would be to give myself room to fail. You know, because I was always in a competitive environment. And so failure was never an option. Mm. But if you don't try different things, then you never know, you know, what, what you're capable of. Um, but people always, someone told me one time to never take a typing course because somebody would want me to be a secretary and they would push me <laughs> in that venue. So I didn't learn how to type until I was probably 25, which then I had to learn the computers. That was fun. <laughs> um, but the, the science classes for me, when I, when I started taking science classes, things clicked. You know, when I took math classes, that was always a challenge for me. Um, but there's some science classes that I just didn't want to take. And so I make sure that the kids understand I'm no different than you. You know, physics, the only thing I thought I needed to know was what goes up comes down. <laughs> yes. But I use physics every day. Optics right. is physics. Right. You know, uh, chemistry, don't, I, I don't know who strung all those carbon molecules together, you know, uh, when I decided to become an optometrist, my nemesis was organic chemistry. That scared me. But fierce, it, it can strangle your mind. It, yes. it, it keeps you from learning. And so once I got over the fear and I decided that it was a hurdle that I just needed to clear. And once I clear the hurdle, then I can go on that path. And so, yeah, I, organic chemistry just became a hurdle. I needed to get over it and keep it moving. And once I let the fear go, then it clicked, that light bulb went off one day and me and the professor looked at each other. It's like, well, when did that happen? <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, but you know, that fear, the fear of being in a room with uh, cadavers, you know, you're gonna put me in a room with a cadaver, that's just never gonna happen. And so that was one of the reasons very early on, the cadavers and organic chemistry, I'm like, mm, maybe you need to rethink what, you know, 
uh, optometry as a career. But once I got past those hurdles, I was in my element and, and I love what I did. Yes. I love what I did. So um, just to recap what you said, what you said just now is just so powerful to me. One, parents, you know, we can't necessarily rely on the schools, but parents, we have to expose our children to various fields, um, not just um, um, an academic, uh, you know, academic meaning going to college, but there's also, you know, various trades. Um, you talked about helping young people see the, um, how different areas translate into others, right? You talked about um, like the carbon and, and seeing how it's going to relate to what it is that you want to do um, and then overcoming fear and, and fear. And, and I like that you said, you know, it's just, it's just a hurdle. You know, it doesn't have to be a wall that you can't get through. It's just a hurdle. You go around it, you go mm -hmm. under it, you, you go over it, but it's just a hurdle. And that's it's so important for all of us. It's a hurdle. And, and I think once you reframe it in your mind, then it becomes an attainable goal. And so even at 12 years old, I'm, I'm telling children that you need to have a resume in your mind at 12. You need to have a goal in mind. You need to understand what you're bringing to the table. And you also need to understand what you need to get to where you want to go. And so if you need the A in a class and you only have a B average right now. Well, what do I need to get to the A? But you have to shoot high. If you always, if you shoot high and you shoot for the A and you get it, then yes, you know, you're right on target. If you miss and you get the B, okay, that's still very, very good. But if you aim low, you're going to, it's pay dirt. I mean, come mm -hmm. on. You know, always aim high no matter what you do, but you have to understand what you need to get to where you want to be. And so even at 12 years old, I, I tell people that all the time, understand your strengths and understand your weaknesses, but you can't allow other people to identify them for you. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. I've known since I was about five years old, because they always put me out front, the nuns decided that I was a kid who could read at a third grade level in kindergarten and that I had the gift of gab. And so they would put me out front. But the same thing that allows me to speak to people is also one of my greatest weaknesses. It's a strength and it's a weakness depending on how I use it. Right. So while my, my voice can be used to motivate and to encourage, the voice is also a weapon. And mm -hmm. so you have to tone that down and you have to understand when to use it. There are times when I need that weapon to back people up, but never to destroy people. Yes. So yeah. it's a weakness and it's a strength. Right. And, and you have to understand that. So you have to, you have to know yourself. That's what you really have. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, being sophisticated to know, to know the difference. Wow. Dr. West, this has been a wonderful conversation and it's going by just, just so quickly. Um, so very early on, you recognize that there was something special about you. You know, um, as you said, you had many, many questions. It seemed like your father let you know that not only did you belong in the room, but the room was yours. Uh, so, you know, and, and you do speaking now, right? And you do mentorship now. Mm -hmm. Did you, I don't, did you see this in your future? I mean, you know, obviously anyone who enters social work is because you care about people, but did you see yourself impacting people on the level that you have? 
Probably not at an early age. Um, I, I shy away from it. So when I know the gift is there and I use it when I was younger, I used it when I needed to use it. Mm-hmm. So if, if the nuns, I went to Catholic school when I was younger, if the nuns put me out front and they said, you know, we want you to read this. Um, I, I gave the speech at my kindergarten graduation. I mean, they, they paid attention to me, but I'm not a prodigy. I'm a child that somebody paid attention to. That's all I am. My mother taught me how to read. Understand my mother dropped out of high school when she was in her 11th year uh, of of schooling uh, simply because the the principal said that N-word and my mother didn't like that and principal got a earful and then some uh, and my mother never went back. But my mother taught me how to read. So by the time I got to kindergarten, I was reading on a third grade level. But my mother taught me, that is my first teacher. And so no one should ever get that mixed up. Uh, it, was, it was at my mother's knee that I learned a whole lot of things. But I also had teachers who paid attention to me. Mm-hmm. But understand, in eighth grade, and I always tell this story, in eighth grade, I, I messed up my uh, eighth grade teacher's um, stats. Uh, we went to a magnet school for academically talented uh, students in the uh, Catholic school system in Philadelphia, and of the top five, four had scholarships to prestigious Catholic institutions. Well, I was the holdout. Mm. But what you didn't understand was that the 13-year-old, 13-year-olds think, okay, this 13-year-old had a meeting with me, myself, and I, and we decided that I wasn't going to a Catholic high school because we had to pay for that. And I could get an education at the Philadelphia High School for Girls academically talented high school, I could do it for free and we didn't have to pay for it. So I decided to do enough so that I wasn't bringing attention to myself, but I made sure I didn't, I wasn't going to get a full scholarship. Mm. I made sure of that because there are other costs that are involved in that. And I didn't want to be bothered with that. I went to girls high. And so the teacher said to me two weeks before we grad, two weeks before I was scheduled to take the entrance exam, she says, well, where are you going to school? And proudly and confidently, I said, I'm going to girls high. Mm. And the teacher turned around and said, you'll never get in. I'm not angry at her anymore. Mm. But that was the first time that I arched my back. Because sometimes you just need to level that playing field. Yes. And I looked her straight in her eyes and I said, you watch me. Just watch me. So if you ever want to quiet your haters, succeed at what you set out to do. And they will quiet every time. And so, yeah, I would like to see her now, uh, just so we can kind of go back and say, you know, you never came up to me and said, Sandy, what's going on? I know you're a good test taker. I know you're a good student. There's something going on in your life. She never said that. She was just upset that I messed up her stats. Because when number five had a full scholarship, and he went to NASA, by the way, and number two didn't, you know, I messed up her statistics and that's all that was about, yeah. but it no longer became about the student. It became about, you know, numbers. And her. Yeah. Right. Wow. You know, it's, it's, t- you know, people who are influential in a child's life, whether that's family members, teachers, um, we can't take it seriously enough, the kind of impacts that we can have. And, and I love that, you know, quiet your haters by doing what you said that you would do. Yeah. Succeed at what you set out to do. Yeah. You know, but even kids at, 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 at an early age, they know. They're, I mean, I knew by the time I was probably nine, I could read, write, and do arithmetic. And you can't take that away from me. 
Mm. You really can't. And so the, the, the more I was exposed to it, the more confidence I had. And so even when this teacher could tell me, you're never going to get it, I said, watch me. And I did. Yes. You know, so parents, pay attention to your kids. Don't let teachers or anyone else tell you that your, your child cannot. Yeah. Um, there certainly are stories out there and we've heard them before where, you know, children are labeled ADHD and they're unteachable. Uh, I remember one, a story of one woman where she took her child out of public school and she homeschooled that child. And that child went on to college and did exceptionally well. But sometimes you have to, to look at your child and see what else that child needs. Sometimes that attention deficit is the fact that you're not giving the child enough to stimulate them in the first place. In the first and place. so there was, did you see recently, there was a little boy who, who wrote a, a letter to his, his teacher. About a pencil? No, not the pencil. The, pen, the, the teacher took his money that he had earned because he was talking to another little boy. No, and He says, I'm six years old. I can't be quiet all the time, hmm. but I want my money back. And he even went so far as to call the teacher a crook <laughs> and told the teacher he was going to hell. And he hurried up, but he wished God would hurry up and come get him. Oh, and I said, but he's six. Right. And he could think that and he could pen that. The child is already telling you he's bored. Right. So I hope that other people around that child saw the fact that this is a child who you need to give some additional work to because he's not being stimulated enough as opposed to punishing him. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it was a really, really funny story. And, I, I, and, and I'm glad I'm not his mother because I would have to laugh and, and not let the child see me laugh uh, and then make sure that child had things in place to, to give them the stimulus and the academics that they need. So Dr. West, in your motivational speaking, do you also speak to parents and, and, care, and primary caregivers of children? Uh, I, I have a tendency to speak to single moms. They hold a special mm -hmm. place in my heart um, because people will always beat you down and tell you uh, that you can't do something, um, that you won't do something. You know, people just knew, I had my baby my last year at Temple University mm -hmm. uh, and People didn't expect me to graduate. They certainly didn't expect me to go on to advanced programs, you know, but you can do those kinds of things. And so I tend to do uh, a lot of work and, and go one-on-one, -on -one, particularly with those single moms. You know, uh, I had a great support system. You certainly can't live in this life and, 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 and be by yourself. Um, you're not an island. Uh, and there are people who, especially in my life, you know, God has always put people around me to support me and encourage me. Uh, but even in your own life, if you have people who are always talking negative and trying to pull you down, you need to get a new circle. You need to get a new circle. I think that's one of the things I loved about uh, New Orleans. Yes. We had a room full of women. I think there were two men in the room. Mm -hmm. But we had a room full of women. And women sometimes can have a reputation of being very catty. But uh, the leader sets the tone. Yes. And she made sure that we were there to support each other and uplift each other. And we need more of that. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, you know, partial to, to single moms, but uh, would love to do more work with, with parents in general, because sometimes we forget about the single dads. Yes. And the single dads are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's Daddy University. I love that program uh, in Philadelphia where it works with, with, with fathers. 
uh, and that's something that's needed. But the single dads are almost invisible. You don't see them. But yeah, you know, I'm very partial to single parents because they need a supportive network that sometimes is lacking. Yes, without judgment, right? Yes. Well, Dr. West, let me give context to New Orleans, and I wanted to come to that. Uh, so Dr. West and I both attended a conference in New Orleans about, what was it, three years ago now? Okay. Yeah, three years 2017. Ago. Yeah, 2017. and actually... Uh, I had already been a patient of Dr. West and I'm in New Orleans and I'm looking at this woman and I'm thinking, she looks so familiar. I think I know her from somewhere. And we realized that we both knew each other from Jersey. We were there attending a women's conference um, facilitated by Rosetta Thurman, founder of Happy Black, yeah. Happy Black Woman. And as you said, you know, the facilitator really sets the tone. And what I found that she did, and she did it so masterfully, is she created a tribe. She created a sisterhood right there for us in that room. And, you know, it's not just you, Dr. West, but there are other women that I continue to support, communicate with. Um, I've had uh, Sonia Prince um, on the program as a previous guest. And, you know, and, and, it's, and as you said, just having a positive network. We don't, I don't think we always understand the impact that our network can have on us, but some of the jewels that I received um, in 2017 at that conference, is, it still resonates with me today. And I continue to apply many of the principles there that I've learned. Yes. Such a positive force. And, and people from that group now, if, if they called on the phone, I think I worked with um, Kim Coles after that, Speak Your Gifts. And people in her group, people in Rosetta Thurman's group, they can call me and say, hey, can you come? And there's that sisterhood, there's their support. Yes. Um, there was no expectation, uh, well, what can you give me mm -hmm. right. if I come on your podcast? It was a means of coming on not only to talk about health and, and the need for us to always be proactive with our health, but also to support you in, in your podcast and, and to hopefully uh, give a message that inspires somebody else. And I appreciate it. And you certainly have. You're inspiring me. So you've reached one so far. Uh, Dr. West, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing, you know, um, what you have with us. You know, I, I think that we can learn so much from one person's journey. Um, you know, there are, there are valleys with our hills and, sure. you know, we don't hear enough, I think about the valley or at least coming out of the valley, right? We don't, right. we don't have to stay in the valley. We can come out of the valley. And sometimes we will need a helping hand doing so. And I, and I believe that voices like yours, Dr. West, will give uh, others and me um, encouragement and motivation to know um, how to move forward, um, how to move forward with a, a network and, and a community um, and, and just, you know, having a strong belief in oneself. And, and I think that what you're doing is instrumental. And, you know, when I went to have my vision checked and I, I saw you and, and I was a, I was a full adult woman at the time. It meant so much to me, Dr. West, that when I walked in, the doctor was a black woman. Um, and, and as you said, you know, being able to check one's vision, you know, you don't, you may not need a strong cultural competence to that, because as you said, you, you know, whether someone, you know, doesn't speak English, doesn't speak at all, um, is from, another culture, you can still get the exam done, but what it did to my mind and to my, to my heart, you know, to have a doctor that I just felt like she knows me, 
that meant so much to me. Well, you know what, what, what I find and what really gets my heart is my seniors. When my seniors come in, and I'm talking about the 70, 80, 90-year-olds who come in, and they come in the back, and the conversation, because I will always stop for them and have the conversation, and it's daughter, I'm so glad to see you. Mm. Um, but what they need to recognize is that I recognize the path that they paved. And so, you know, for some of the children who, you know, when I hear this, okay, boomer, <laughs> that always <laughs> makes me laugh. Because I always sat at the knees of my elders and I tried to learn from them. Uh, one of my friends was, she just recently passed, she was 101. Mm. Um, and, and loved her to death and just loved to hear her stories and, and her encouragement. But I stand on their shoulders and I understand that. And I understand that children when they see me need to understand that things were not always easy for me there have been valleys in my life but i've been able to overcome those valleys um you know so people sometimes see professionals and they think oh they got it made like somebody gave us a carpet and we just flew in here uh and that doesn't happen there's usually a struggle in the background that people don't know about and so yes i do tell those stories to encourage people look if i made it through a, a medical program, so can you, okay? Trust me, I was a single mom going through that program and thank you, Jesus, because I, I got through it. I, God, God had his hand on me, he surrounded me and, and I thank all those people who supported me through. Wonderful. So Dr. West, as we are closing, is there anything that you would like to, to add in closing? Anything that we haven't discussed? Is there a question that I have not asked? Well, I would just like to, to just encourage people, um, particularly African-Americans, to be proactive in your health. Be proactive in your life. Um, don't take for granted that I feel healthy, I look healthy, so I am healthy. Um, sometimes things can creep in there. And so go get those physicals. None of us like blood tests, you know, but I get blood tests done every year. Uh, none of us like to have invasive tests. Um, but the mammograms, mm -hmm. you know, it's important for us to do that, even particularly women, as we're taking care of everybody else. You can't be a caretaker if you don't take care of yourself first. Right. And so always be proactive with those kinds of things because uh, they can impact on you and take you away from here. I, I'm hearing 30 year olds that are dying of heart attacks. Right. Uh, and, and some of it's just stress. Um, the, the stressors that we put on ourselves and, and the demands in life. And so even as, you know, I'm now coming into the last, you know, uh, decade of, of, of this year, I'm 59 this year, um, I realized that I need to, to, to pull back a little bit. I'm, I'm working, I think I told you, almost 50 hours a week. And it's like, what are you doing? You know, um, you need to kind of pull back and, and do some other kinds of things. Uh, but that also releases some of the stress that's on my body because that can induce high blood pressure. You know, our mm -hmm. eating habits, we need to be conscious of. Um, there, there are just so many things in, in our lives that we need to be proactive about and not wait until something is wrong and then react to it. Right. And so, Dr. West, um, folks can find you on Instagram at Sandra West underscore speaks. Yes. And um, how else can they get in touch with you? Uh, you email, if you email me at stwestod uh, at gmail.com, um, that's my 
professional uh, email. And so I'll get it quicker in that Gmail than I will in the other one, because sometimes things get lost. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can, you can find me at those. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. West. I'll say this, you know, one of the, so much of what you said was impactful, but one of the most profound things that you said, I wrote it down as you were speaking, you said, I'm not a prodigy. I'm a child. Someone paid attention to that is so powerful. Yes. So powerful. And so, yes, we all need to pay attention to those little things in our children and, and encourage them. Mm. Dr. West, I can talk to you all day. And I think I've certainly been in your office taking up probably more time than I should have. And I don't want to take up more time tonight. I want to thank you so much for being such a wonderful and thoughtful guest. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the community, impacting our young people and impacting our sisters. Thank you as well. You know, you do marvelous work in, in New Jersey, I'm quite aware of what you do. And, and uh, I, I support you. Uh, we have to get together and do a project together. We do. So we'll talk together. We'll talk about that at some other time. But yeah, I'm looking forward to, to doing those kinds of things as I'm starting to wind down. And this is going to be my third career. I'm going to flip the wheel again. Yeah, you wind it um, down in one. You winding up in another. <laughs> I'm, I'm winding up in another. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. West. Thank you, hon. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Norris Feast podcast. Be on the lookout for a new episode coming at you fresh next week. And as always, if you want to learn more about me and the work that I do, visit my website, noramohammed.com. Or if you have a listener question, email me at info at You can also follow the Norris Speaks podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Norris Speaks podcast. I'll be sure to include links in the show notes. If this show has value to you, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with family and friends. And be sure to check out previous episodes. And remember, don't just join the movement. Be the movement. Stay in peace.